This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. There's nothing quite like the theatrical life. There's nothing quite like the theatrical There's nothing quite like the theatrical life. There's nothing quite like the theatrical life. Shall I try that again? There's nothing quite like the theatrical life. Yeah. This is the one I can just feel. Alright. There's nothing quite like the theatrical life. That's good. I like that. The backstage hustle and bustle before a performance at a major theater like this one, the La Jolla Playhouse, is an environment fraught with anticipation and excitement. And nerves, perhaps. But even in a performance space, there are places like this where an actor can find a little pocket of quiet before going on stage. For all of its stresses, I don't know one serious actor who would give up this craft, and that must be difficult at times. Actors, after all, have private lives, issues that they're dealing with, family problems, relationship turmoil, anything and everything that you and I go through as well, the stuff we call life. In order to be a successful actor, you've got to put all that stuff aside and prepare for the moment that you step onto that stage. It's that kind of emotional dichotomy that's at the center of the opera we're going to talk about today. It follows a small troupe of comic actors who travel from town to town in southern Italy, playing before audiences of rustic villagers delighting them and brightening their otherwise difficult and routine lives. The star of the show and the leader of the troupe, the clown, has discovered that his wife is having an affair with one of the villagers, and he finds this out just before he makes himself up to go out on stage. The tension of this moment carries the opera to its violent conclusion, and it made such an impression on early audiences that its composer, Ruggiero Leoncavallo, became an overnight sensation. It's been solidly in the repertoire since its premiere in 1892. The opera, Clowns, Pagliacci. I'm Nick Ravellis, and this is Opera Talk. This is Kronos Theatre Group, a San Diego theatre company that, among other forms of theatre, performs Commedia dell'arte. They're here to help me give you some background on the Commedia tradition. Commedia came out of Italy sometime in the 16th century. The name refers to the fact that they considered themselves artisans or craftsmen, not artists. So the arte part of their title refers to the craft of improvisation. In fact, The original full title of this kind of group was Commedia dell'arte al improvviso. As these traveling theatrical troupes evolved, certain stock characters evolved with them, along with plots that their audiences would have recognized. The actors had to know these plots cold and know all of the mechanics that drove the plots forward. But they didn't memorize lines as we would in a standard play or comedy today. 
All of their dialogue, if there was dialogue, was improvised according to the plot and according to the characteristics of the roles that they were playing any given night. So although the plots would certainly always begin and end the same way, the journey itself could be quite different from night to night. Important characters in the Commedia tradition were Arlecchino, or Harlequin, the meddling servant, who might remind us of Mozart's and Rossini's Figaro. Dottore, the pedantic old academic who lusts after beautiful young women, who might remind us of Bartolo in The Barber of Seville. And Colombina, the beautiful young maid whom every man desires and who might remind us of Susanna in Le Nozze di Figaro, or even Rosina again in Barber. Prior to these ladies, women were all but banned from a life on stage. Hence, Commedia was responsible for actresses. All of these dramatic personages had certain characteristics that the actors honed over years of rehearsal and experience, making them instantly recognizable to the audience. It was a commedia troupe of traveling actors who attracted the attention of the composer Ruggiero Leoncavallo. His father was a magistrate in the city of Cosenza in southern Italy, and a case similar to the one posed in the opera came before him. A man was accused of murdering his wife and sat in the docket awaiting his sentence. Leoncavallo relates that as a boy, he couldn't forget the look of shame and despair on the face of the man who had killed his wife in a jealous rage. What was it that attracted the young composer to this particular story? I think the answer has a lot to do with the Italian verismo movement. Verismo is an Italian term that loosely means realism, and realism in literary and theatrical works of the late 19th century had become all the rage, especially in France, under the influence of the great novelist Émile Zola. There, it was called naturalisme or naturalism, an attempt to look at the world with a cold, objective eye, watching human beings act and react within their society. Naturalistic works like Zola's Thérèse Raquin and La Bête Humaine emphasized the dark side of life, the harshness of it. In 19th century France, there was much to report that was violent, deadly, and pessimistic, particularly among the so-called lower social classes. The Italian version of naturalism, verismo, affected the literature, the theater, and the opera of Italy in the late 19th century and caused a real storm of criticism from the more traditional members of the opera audience. After the enormous success of Pietro Mascagni's Cavalleria Rusticana in 1890, Leon Cavallo just knew that this violent slice of life, this story of a play within a play, was absolutely right for Italian audiences. <laughs> Valeria Rusticana captured the imagination of the opera-going public with its story of revenge in the Sicilian countryside, not only in Italy, but all over the world. It won a prize in a competition run by the music publisher, Sonzogno, a prize which came with a full professional production of the work at the Teatro Costanzi in Rome in 1890. Pietro Mascagni, the composer, wrote many other operas, 
but none could equal the success of this one. It became a cause celebre for other young Italian composers, like the composer of Pagliacci, Ruggero Leon Cavallo. Now, inspired by Cavalleria's success, everyone wanted to write a short, one-act opera in the Verismo style based on rural life. Leon Cavallo was certainly ready for the challenge. He was even championed by the baritone Victor Morel, Verdi's first Iago in Otello and the first Falstaff, who saw genius in the early compositions of this composer, Leon Cavallo. Remember, too, that having struck gold with Cavalleria, the publisher Sonzogno wanted another opera to capitalize on this success. When offered the idea of an opera that centered on a play within a play that ended in murder, <laughs> Sonzogno jumped at the chance, and Leon Cavallo was rewarded with a commission. He used Cavalleria as a kind of model, and in fact there are similarities between the two operas. But Leon Cavallo's work is more progressive in style is in two short acts rather than one, and has more of an emphasis on through-composed scenes rather than individual arias and ensembles. The premiere cast for Pagliacci was stellar, and it included the baritone Victor Morel, Leon Cavallo's champion, in the role of Tonio. Tonio would be a rather minor character in the opera, except for the fact that he's the one who comes out in front of the curtain at the beginning of the opera and sets the story up for the audience in a kind of narrator's prologue. This was entirely the invention of the singer, not the composer. But because Morel was so revered, Leon Cavallo bowed to his wishes and produced a gateway to the opera that is now one of the go-to calling cards for dramatic baritones. The first performances were at the Teatro Dal Verme in Milan under the baton of the 25-year-old Arturo Toscanini, and it was an instant success. It was immediately translated into all of the languages of Europe and premiered in New York only a year later. The opera's progress was not, however, without its problems. Having read the libretto of Pagliacci, the French author Catulmont assumed that Leon Cavallo had plagiarized his play, La Femme du Tabarin, and sued Leon Cavallo in 1899. But the composer was convincing in relating the story of the early murder case that his father had adjudicated during his youth, and the case was dismissed. Leon Cavallo never had another hit other than Pagliacci, but the work is so wonderfully written, so perfectly poised, that he'll forever be remembered for that alone. A traveling group of actors arrives in a small Calabrian village ready to perform. Their leader is Canio, the clown, called Pagliaccio in the troupe. Canio is married to Nedda, to whom the hunchbacked actor Tonio is very attracted. When Tonio tries to kiss her, she turns on him, and for this, Tonio will seek revenge. Nedda is actually in love with a villager, Silvio. While they sing a love duet, Tonio fetches her husband, Canio, to catch the lovers in the act, but Canio is too late. He knows that his wife has a lover, but he doesn't yet know who. In his famous aria, Vesti la Juba, he bemoans his fate as the cuckolded husband. (laughs) 
The second act is in fact the troops performance and it exactly mirrors the real life situation. Arlecchino comes to make love to Colombina, played by Neda, but when Canio, the payacho, arrives, his jealousy overcomes him. Canio, in a fit of rage, stabs Neda to death, as well as Silvio, who runs up onto the stage in order to try to help her. The opera ends with Canio's famous words, La commedia è finita. The drama is over. One of the most interesting things about Leon Cavallo's opera Pagliacci is that play within a play in the second act. The opera, of course, is about a traveling commedia troupe and the intrigue involved amongst the actors in that troupe, the plotting of Tonio the Hunchback, who loves Nedda but is rebuffed by her, the passionate love affair going on between Nedda and Silvio, one of the local villagers where the troupe happens to be performing, and, of course, Canio, the leader of the troupe who is Nedda's husband and who's just discovered this illicit affair. The question for me as always, is this. How does the composer Ruggiero Leoncavallo deal with all of this confusion musically? Well, up until this point in the opera, we've been witnessing everything in real life, right? Tonio's coming on to Nedda and her rebuff of his advances, Silvio and Nedda's affair with their big love duet, and Canio's tragic response to all that. All of Leoncavallo's music is absolutely appropriate to what's happening. The music is passionate, bigger than life, conveying big emotions like desire, lust, anger, devastation. When the commedia begins on the makeshift stage in the piazza of the village, the music completely changes. Leon Cavallo turns to earlier musical forms in order to place us and the onstage audience into the artificial world of the commedia. He starts with a minuet, a noble dance from the 18th century, which immediately puts us in a new sonic world, if you will. this music, Colombina is alone in the house she shares with her husband, Payacho, and she's waiting impatiently for the boy Tadeo to return from market with a chicken that she's ordered for dinner. Payacho is away till evening, and she's setting the table for Arlecchino, her secret lover. Arlecchino appears outside of her house with a guitar and sings a serenade to her. Cue another older musical form, a serenata, or serenade, that Arlecchino sings to her great delight. The orchestra imitates the sound of a guitar with the strings playing pizzicato, plucked instead of bowed. 
So we've gone from a minuet to a serenade. What's next? Well, Taddeo finally arrives and he's brought the chicken from the market. Our composer Leon Cavallo marks this as a scena comica, or a comic scene. It's still in 18th century or ancient style, but in a more generalized way with trills and quick rhythmic impulses in the music. So we're still in the world of the Commedia, not in the real world, the Verismo world at all. Later on, when Arlecchino finally enters the house of his lover Colombina, we get a gavotte. A gavotte, yes, certainly not the music of Leon Cavallo's day, but a musical form that goes back even further than the minuet to the 17th century. This music accompanies the lover's love duet, and it's marked con molta eleganza, with the most possible elegance. On it goes until Pagliaccio, Canio, enters the scene. As the lovers hear him approach the house, the music, still in ancient style, becomes agitated as Colombina rushes to hide Arlecchino, who leaves by the back door. And then a wonderful detail. As Colombina looks out her window after Arlecchino, she sings, Until midnight, and I'll be yours forever. Underneath this sentence, from the orchestra, we get a tune that's been associated with Neda's forbidden love for Silvio, the so-called love theme. Then Canio, as Pagliaccio, enters. Notice how the music changes suddenly. We're no longer in the world of 18th century artifice, but in the real world. Back to Verismo, as Canio breaks character and turns to us in an aside, and he says, by God, those were the same words that she used to her lover. The music is real, immediate, Verismo. When he enters as Pagliaccio after the aside, we're tugged right back into the world of the play with music that has an air of mock tragedy about it.
and so on. This constant push and pull between the artificial and the real, the ancient and the present, the formal and the dramatic, until all hell breaks loose and Canio sings a passionate burst of song with language that could be of the play as Pagliaccio, but as well as language of his real life, his real feelings as Canio. One point, attempting to bring things back to the artifice of the Commedia, Neda returns to the music of the Gavat, but Kanya won't let us stay in that world. And at that point, we remain in the world of Verismo until the brutal end of the opera. I hope what you've noticed is that this tug-of-war between musical styles has created a wonderful sense of tension at this point in the opera. It perfectly captures the feelings of the village audience, at once pulled in by the 18th century sweetness and the elegance of the play, and then thrust violently into the world of the actors, whose real lives are falling apart as we observe them. One of the things that you want to do before seeing any opera is to get to know the music and the story a bit before you come to the theater. So here are some resources for you to enjoy before seeing Pagliacci that'll help you do just that. There are a number of classic recordings of this opera, and I, for one, appreciate the older recordings much more than the newer ones. Here's a wonderful CD starring Placido Domingo in his prime in the role of Canio, with Montserrat Caballé as Deda and Cheryl Milnes as Tonio under the baton of Nello Santi. Here's a recording that most critics agree is one of the most wonderful recordings of any opera ever made, the Pagliacci conducted by Herbert von Karajan with Carlo Bergonzi as Canio, Joan Carlyle as Nedda, and Giuseppe Taddei as Tonio. This recording is stunning in terms of its audio quality. 
And here's yet another one, the cast including the great Canio of Mario Delmonico with Gabriella Tucci and Cornell McNeil. And one more, you can't ignore the Canio of the great Franco Corelli with Lucine Amara and Tito Gobbi. These are all wonderful recordings, most of them paired with Cavalleria Rusticana, that other one-act opera from the Verismo School of Italian Opera. In terms of DVDs, I think the best are these two. This one comes from the Zurich Opera House with Jose Cura, probably the reigning Canio today, Fiorenza Serolins, and Carlo Guelfi. The conductor is Stefano Ranzani. The production values are wonderful, the performances sizzling. It's also paired with Cavalleria as well, so that's an extra bonus. But you certainly cannot go wrong with this classic metropolitan opera production under the baton of James Levine, with Pavarotti, Teresa Stratus, and Juan Pons. Pavarotti was a great Canio, and this DVD captures his voice in perfect condition. The extra here is Puccini's one-act opera from Il Tritico, the little horror story, Il Tabaro. Absolutely terrific. I know out of these many resources, you'll find something to help you appreciate this great opera better than if you came to the opera cold. But thanks to supertitles, you can always do that. The device of a play within a play is a well-worn one that was most notably seen in Shakespeare's play, Hamlet. Remember it's during that performance in the Great Hall of the Castle in Elsinore that King Claudius reveals his guilt in the murder of Hamlet's father. In the opera Pagliacci, the play within a play becomes the real time and real location of a brutal double murder, something that probably both shocked and attracted audiences in 1892. The opera is so powerful, it still has that power to shock and attract with its dynamic music and theatricality. You don't want to miss it. I'm Nick Ravellis. I'll see you at the opera. How was that? That was perfect. Okay, let's go again. been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.